0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to open in a word of prayer to ask the Lord's guidance as we study His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to gain a greater insight into the cosmic conflict in which we all participate. As we study the angelic conflict and we see its influence on our thinking, on human history, on human culture, we pray that we might be able to have the insight from doctrine to be able to perceive where we are influenced by human viewpoint thinking and false doctrine as opposed to divine viewpoint thinking contained in Bible doctrine. Now, Father, we just pray that you would you would help us to understand the things that we are studying that we may be able to evaluate our own thinking and our own lives from your perspective we pray this now in Christ's name amen we are studying in first john but we are taking time out for a mini series on the angelic conflict the reason for that is because in our passage in first john chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 and following Uh, the Apostle makes it clear that he has already taught this subject matter to the congregation that he is addressing. Because of that, it makes sense what he is saying. For example, he says in the middle of verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word there in the Greek is a skuo, which is related to the might of God in Ephesians 6.10 that we are to avail ourselves of in the spiritual conflict. I've rendered you young men because you are strong, number one. Number two, the word of God abides in you, and it is the word of God that is our uh, strength in the angelic conflict. And third, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he goes on to say, in terms of a prohibition, verse 15, Do not love the cosmic system, that is the world or the cosmic system, human viewpoint thinking, nor the things in the cosmic system. If anyone loves the cosmic system, the love of the Father is not in him. So we have two dimensions of spiritual warfare listed here so far. One is the cosmic system. The other is Satan, the evil one. And then third in verse 16 is the discussion of the lust of the flesh. These are the three enemies of the spiritual life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So in order to put things together, and uh, understand the background to this, we have to do a study of the angelic conflict. And furthermore, since we have reorganized our Sunday school program into a prep school, it is further necessary for me to uh, take some time out here and there as we go through different, different studies to address some topics that will be addressed in the curriculum in the coming year. And since some of these things I have not addressed in detail, I need to do that so that the teachers have a good, uh, good basis of study for what they're going to teach the kids downstairs. Now, we started off a couple of weeks ago looking at the doctrine of the angelic conflict, gave a definition of it as the conflict between the forces of God and the forces of, of, of uh, evil, forces of Satan, that began at some time in eternity past and is working its way out in human history in terms of spiritual warfare. That's our definition. Then we came to the second area, which is the course of the prehistoric angelic conflict. I've added one word in that, so you make sure you get that in your notes. The course of the prehistoric angelic conflict, how it began. Point A under Roman numeral 2 is the creation of the angels. I said that that is not stated in the scriptures as to when precisely God created the angels. We just know that from Job 38, 4 through 7, that when God created the earth, the angels, the sons of God, and the morning stars, those are terms for the angels, shouted together for joy. So that means they had to be in existence at the time of the creation of the universe. The angels are made up of several groupings and orders. The first we looked at last time was cherubs. Cherubs have four rings, wings. They are associated with the holiness and righteousness of God in vindicating His character. second order of angels were the seraphs, seraphim in the Hebrew, and they have six wings, and they are associated with the praise of God in the heavens. They are the ones who surround the throne and sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The third category of angel we looked at was the archangel. There is one archangel, and that is Michael. And then the, and Michael's responsibility seemed to always center around protecting the nation Israel. And then the second angel, uh, whose name we know is Gabriel. Gabriel is the one who gives uh, revelation related to the dispensations, change of dispensations, advance in God's plan and uh, explanation of Revelation. So we covered that last time. We have seen uh, point number B under Roman numeral 2, that the angels were united at the time of creation, Job 38, 4 through 7. See, we looked at the fall of Satan, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We looked at that last time. And we saw that even though some modern scholarship is following uh, liberal scholarship of 100 years ago into denying that these passages relate to the uh, fall of Satan. Nevertheless, they do. And I listed uh, about seven reasons last time as to why the figures in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 could not describe a human king, neither could it describe some sort of mythological uh, event or mythological event. Uh, uh, person. Neither could it have been taken from some Canaanite myth or some other ancient Phoenician myth because we've never discovered such a thing. This is the revelation of God and is a picture of the original sin in the universe of Satan uh, who was called Lucifer or, the, correctly in the Hebrew, Halel ben Shahar. And that brings us to point D under the course of the angelic conflict, which is The fall of the demons. How did this progress? We saw that Satan fell in Isaiah 14 through his own arrogance. He wanted to be like God. So if we were to uh, characterize Satan's sin, first of all, it is arrogance. This is exemplified by the five I will statements in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, he emphasizes his will as against God's will. So this brings up the second element of satanic thinking, and that is antagonism toward God. We have I will versus thy will. So these then become the two elements that are going to characterize satanic thinking and demonic thinking. That in turn will come over to be the characteristic of all cosmic thinking or worldly thinking. And that is where we're going eventually in 1 John uh, 2.15 is to understand the whole concept of worldliness or cosmic thinking. So the angels, uh, certain angels followed Satan. He tempted them. We saw in the Ezekiel 28 passage that he trafficked among the angels in the picture the, ver- the, the, the verbiage in the Hebrew is the verb, verbs of commerce. And it was, remember last time when we looked at Ezekiel 28, 11 and following, that it was addressed to the king of Tyre. The first ten verses were addressed to the prince of Tyre, and that was the human king. The king of Tyre is the demonic power, which is Satan behind the power of the king of Tyre. Tyre was one of the foremost commercial centers in the ancient world. It was a port city, and there was trade between the Phoenicians in Tyre that went out throughout the Mediterranean world and in in, uh, Asia. Uh, From Persia across, the uh, caravans would bring spices and uh, silks and other things from the east, bring them to Tyre, and then they would go out across the Mediterranean so it was a commercial trade center and so the scripture uses that imagery to show how this chief of all the angels who functioned uh, in many ways like a priest for all of the angels how he began to traffic among all of the angels for his own benefit his own agenda and he managed to seduce approximately one third of these angels to to uh, follow him in his rebellion against God. So point number one under the fall of the, de- uh, fall of the demons is the identity of the demons. These are angels who followed Lucifer in his rebellion. Revelation, verse tw- uh, Revelation 12, verse 4 states, And his tail, referring to the dragon, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So that gives us the number. Now, we don't know how many angels they are. there are. They are described in Scripture as myriads upon myriads. So that means there are probably billions and billions of angels. We don't know exactly how many, but it is a finite number. And one-third of those angels followed Lucifer in his revolt. And they will all come under judgment. Now, the second point under the fall of the demons is that today there are two categories of demons. There are two categories or classifications of demons. All fallen angels are demons. All fallen angels are demons, and there are two groupings. First of all, there are the operational demons these are the demons that are still involved in carrying out the the mission of satan on the planet they uh communicate we don't know how they communicate false doctrine to man they influence man through various false doctrines according to second second um, or second timothy uh 3:1 there are doctrines of demons and this characterizes the church today Many people get involved in um, uh, following false teaching. Excuse me, that should be 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, and that's talking about believers who will apostatize from doctrine, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is not doctrines about demons, although that certainly would be a subcategory. When we look at the apostasy that's going on today, uh, and much of the false teaching that occurs on the realm of spiritual warfare and the demonic, one could uh, perhaps see that 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 idea would certainly be included. But it is doctrines from the source of demons. They are paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons so that they are leading people astray from the truth of God's Word. The Word of God is our ultimate authority. When it comes to, to life we look to one of four different authorities for truth. The first is human reason. The second is uh, human, it's called empiricism, and it is the process of scientific study and observation based on what we see, hear, touch and taste and feel. It's based on uh, human observation. Point number three Or the third way in which we come to truth is through mysticism. Mysticism is much more subjective and has to do with the fact that that people often have experiences where they think certain things have happened. These experiences are so overwhelming for whatever reason it might be that they have these intuitive flashes of truth and they think that this is something that is absolutely true. They've seen God. God's spoken to them. Um, rather humorous side, one, one uh, lady in Little Rock, Arkansas this last week uh, is so caught up with, um, bad choice of words perhaps, but so caught up with, uh, with spiritual things that she was driving down the car. It was a nice day in Little Rock. She had her sunroof open. She's driving down the street and she saw this person that, that looked like Jesus. So she thought it was the rapture. And she started climbing out of her sunroof out and fell into traffic and because she didn't want to miss the rapture. So uh, people have all kinds of experiences they identify with God. And uh, there's always the odd person out there who becomes a little obsessed and um, they lose their mental balance over this and that's unfortunately what happens to, to many people. But in mysticism our own experience or intuitive insights become the ultimate authority. And then the final authority is the revelation of God. Now all of these are based on faith as the ultimate assumption. Faith in human reason, faith in our ability to correctly interpret our experience and under empiricism. Faith in our own uh, the veracity of our own intuitive insights, or faith in the revelation of God, and what happens in modern spiritual warfare is that people are basing their doctrines not on what the Scripture says, but on either intuitive insights. They just say, "Oh, such and such happened to so and so. That must be a demon." They're just convinced from their from inside their own soul. Or they have gone out and, like uh, some people have done in the so called deliverance ministries, and they've been involved with, um, you know, 400 or 500 different people whom they claim because of their odd behavior to be demon possessed, and therefore they draw con- certain conclusions about the nature of demon possession based on their empiricism. But their empiricism then becomes a basis for judging and evaluating the Word of God and not the Word of God, the basis for judging and evaluating their empiricism. And for that reason, there is a tremendous amount of confusion about uh, spiritual warfare, about the nature of demons and their limitations. And so we don't want to get into some sort of non-biblical speculation about the fact that... uh, about whether or not demons can read your minds. I don't think they can. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They, they're smart. They're a lot smarter than any of us. And so they have uh, thousands of years of human history uh, upon which to uh, build a database of human behavior so they can, they can predict pretty wisely and, and fairly intelligently what our uh, decisions are going to be often. But they can't read our minds, and uh, uh, neither can Satan, so they are not omniscient. But these angels do communicate false doctrine, and they are involved in ways of promoting certain deceptions um, in human history. And as 2 Corinthians 4 4 states, Satan blinds the mind of of men to the gospel. And notice it's their mind. Satan is the one who uses uh, rational arguments that are not based on Scripture in order to confuse and distort the truth. That's how that works. This is not some sort of metaphysical blinding where, where Satan is reaching into your mind and somehow putting blinders on, um, but he is using false doctrine or false thinking in order to deceive and distract people. So there are two categories of fallen angels. The first category are the operational demons. And those are organized in a ranking system. Uh, to carry out the mission of Jesus, and there are various places which speaks of this uh, ranking system. one is in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. And there we read, or excuse me in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So rulers, principalities, powers these are some of the terms used to describe the the angelic hierarchy as well as the demonic hierarchy. So there is an organization and there is a chain of command among the the fallen angels, just as there is among the angels. Those are the operational demons. Then there are the non-operational demons. These are demons that are not involved in human history right now. These are the non-operational demons. And there are two categories of non-operational demons. The first are the demons of Genesis chapter 6. But before we look at Genesis chapter 6, I want to uh, first of all look at uh, Job chapter 1 for background. Job chapter 1 for background. These are passages that should be familiar to many of you, but... I know they may not be for some of you, so we'll take the time to uh, look at these passages. It's always important to look at the Scripture itself. Now, in Job chapter 1, the first five verses describe for us the condition of Job and all of his blessings, his possessions. He was one of the wealthiest and most prosperous men at his time. And then we're given a glimpse of what goes on in the heavenly realm, starting in verse 6. Verse 6 we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Two things I want you to note here. First of all, the term sons of God is a technical Hebrew term that is not the same as being called the son of God in the New Testament. We're all children of God in the New Testament as believers. But in the Old Testament, the term sons of God is a technical term for angels. Fallen angels and elect angels. It's a term for both. In the Hebrew, it is the the phrase b'nai ha-elohim. B E N E H A, that's a definite article. Elohim. Beneha Elohim. And what we see here is that this angelic convocation before the throne of God includes fallen angels as well as elect angels, and Satan himself is present. So there are these periodic, the picture is of periodic assemblies of all of the angels, fallen and elect before. The Lord, and the Lord said to Satan, "From where do you come?" This reminds us of of uh Second Peter, or excuse me, First Peter, chapter five, where we're told that the Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Lord said to Satan, "From whence do you come?" Satan answered the Lord and said, "From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it." Now, remember, Satan is not omnipresent, and he is not omniscient. He is a limited creature even though his intelligence far surpasses any other creature. He is going about the earth, seeking whom he may devour. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Now, I don't want to get involved in the um, issue related to Job. I just want to make the point that there are these convocations of angels, and they're all called collectively the sons of God. This is reiterated in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. There we have Then we have another conversation which is going to uh, cause Job tremendous suffering. Now, having had that for our background, where we've understood that all of the angels are called sons of God, and that this is a technical term for angels, let's go back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose now what is this talking about first of all we have to remember that from a clear study of the scriptures the term sons of God refers to angels it never refers to anything else in the Old Testament it is a technical term in the Hebrew now there is a Uh, English phrase that is uh, rendered sons of the Lord in some passages and it is not b'neiha, it's in numbers somewhere and recently I ran across a theologian who didn't look at the original languages and was using that as an exception to the rule but in the Hebrew the term sons of God is never used anywhere in the Old Testament except to refer to angels and angelic beings so here we have a Another bizarre instance in the Old Testament, something that is far outside of our understanding. The sons of God, that is angels, and what we infer because of their behavior is that these are not, these are not the holy angels, but these are fallen angels. These are fallen angels who are, have a mission. And their mission is to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. Now, why would they be out to destroy the genetic purity of the human race? Because in Genesis chapter 3 15, the Lord had promised that it would be the seed of Eve that would provide salvation for the human race. The Savior needed to be true humanity. And if Satan could so destroy the purity, of the uh, human race so that it was not pure humanity then he could block any provision of a savior that was pure humanity so this is a satanic assault a, a satanic assault on the genetic purity of the human race we're told that the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose now this raises another question in, in many people 's minds because there's a passage in the Gospels mark 1225 where Jesus is asked by the uh, Sadducees uh, there's a woman who's uh, uh, married many times and, and uh, her husbands keep dying on her and so the Pharisees make up this situation and say, well who's, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection and Jesus Uh, says, well, don't you know that we will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage? And so at the future date, there will be no intermarriage among the angels. Uh, There's no marriage among the angels. That's point number one. That's the objection that, well, angels don't marry, so how can they be sexual? And it's a fair fair objection. Point number one in the answer to the objection is that throughout scriptures, all angels appear as human males. When they appear in human form, they always appear as males. Point number two. Angels, as I pointed out last time, have, are, have an immaterial body that is based on light. That's all we can really say about it and infer from the scriptures, is that somehow the, the physical properties of the angelic body is based on light. And they have the ability to transform themselves into uh, a material body with all of the functions of a material body. And the way we, we can deduce that is because when you look at passages like Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where you have the story of God and two angels coming to visit Abraham. And as he comes to visit Abraham, they are welcomed with Uh, tremendous fanfare by Abraham, they are welcomed into his tent, and a feast is prepared for them. And they sit down and they eat and they drink. And as far as Abraham is concerned from his physical, empirical abilities, he's looking at three human beings. They have taken on the form of, of a human body with all of its bodily functions, as far as we can tell. When they go, leave when the two angels leave Abram to go warn Lot to leave Sodom before the judgment, they are viewed as being physically attractive by the sodomite perverts in Sodom who want to have sexual relations with them. And so we have that episode similar to the one we studied in first hour in, in judges nineteen where the men came and banged on the door wanting Uh, lot to give up his visitors so that they could uh, have a uh, gang rape out in the town square um, based on their homosexual perversion so they appeared the point I'm making is that in all of these situations you have angels who take on the appearance of a physical human body with all of its functions so that uh, the argument from Mark 12, 25, that since angels don't marry, they can't engage in sex. Remember, angels are fundamentally immaterial. They could not, in their immaterial body, engage in sexual relations anyway. But they can take on human form, and they do have some abilities. Now, we have to argue, totally based on the use of language and even... Um, one commentator that I always enjoy reading on Genesis because of his uh, scholarship, because of his uh, unique abilities in Hebrews, a uh, Jewish scholar by the name of Umberto Casuto. He is not a believer, but nevertheless he uh, has a very strong argument based not only on the text, but also gives a uh, long history of the Jewish interpretation that this passage has always been understood to refer to um, Fallen angels or to demons. It does not refer to human beings. There's no way there is. It's impossible. The the weakest of all the arguments is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men. I mean, excuse me. Yeah, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men would be the descendants of Cain. But if um, uh, an analysis of the passage, an analysis of the genealogies the age, etc., is correct, and you have a population on the earth at this time of around three, anywhere from as low as 2.5 billion to 5 billion. Now, if you've got that many people on the earth, you can't divide them up into two classifications as descendants of Cain and descendants of Seth, and all the descendants of Seth are believers and all the descendants of Cain are unbelievers. And that's how the argument usually works. But I think it's based on the fact that, that many of those people have a, have a concept that there just weren't too many people on the earth at that time. And that doesn't fit with the facts. It doesn't fit with the usage of the terminology in Hebrew. It doesn't fit with the facts of the population of that day. And it doesn't fit with other passages, for example, in the New Testament. Let's turn and see New Testament commentary on these passages in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eighteen. First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins. This is a substitutionary preposition. Who pair? Christ died as a substitute for sin, once for all. That means that he died for every single sin in human history. The just for preposition of substitution again. Three times you have the word for in English. Each time it could could be translated as a substitute for. Christ also died as a substitute for sins, once as a substitute for all, the just as a substitute for the unjust. He died, and then we have a purpose clause, He died in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also... So, he's made alive in the spirit. This is talking about the fact that after he died physically on the cross, his, spirit, his human spirit and soul departed from his physical body. And something happened in those, that time between his physical death and his resurrection. During that time, he made a trip into Hades, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, a little background. According to Luke 17, when, where you have the story about Lazarus and the rich man, when Lazarus died, he went to what the Old Testament calls Sheol and the New Testament calls Hades. At that time before the cross, Sheol or Hades is made up of two compartments. One is called Abraham's bosom. And it is also called paradise. The other is a place of torments. It's fiery and it's hot. It's painful. In between there is a great gulf. The two cannot intermingle or carry on in conversation. The rich man dies and he is in torments. He looks across the gulf and he sees Abraham. And he wants Abraham to go back he um, I mean, looks across, he sees Lazarus, and he wants Abraham to release him to go back and uh, tell all of his brothers and warn them about, about eternal condemnation. Now, the interesting thing about this whole story is that, uh, just as a sidelight, is he's had this tremendous experience, and he says if Lazarus was just resurrected, everybody seems to think that somehow if there's some miracle if somebody would just come back from the grave and tell us what the afterlife was like, then we could convince people of the truth of Scripture. But what this story tells us and what, Lazarus, what, what the rich man says, if you'll just release him to go back and tell all my brothers they won't come here, and Abraham says, if they won't believe the witness of Moses and the prophets, how will they believe Lazarus? In other words, signs and wonders and miracles are not that which convinces people of the truth of scripture. Because the issue is volition. The issue is not experience or miracles. So. Hades is called torments. Now there is another compartment. In Hades. Which is called the abyss. And these. Play a role in. The understanding what is going on with the. Uh, non operational. Angels. Our demons. So Jesus is in spirit, in his soul and spirit, the immaterial part of Jesus, goes to Tartarus. Now, I don't make a distinction and say that Jesus' spirit went in one direction and his soul in another direction, because the soul contains the mentality. It contains the self-consciousness, the mentality, the emotions, the volition, and the conscience of the individual. The human spirit is simply that immaterial aspect that works together with the soul, so that it can have a relationship with God. The human spirit can't function on its own because then it would be absent; it would lack mentality, self-consciousness, emotion, and volition. The soul could not operate independent of the Holy Spirit or the human spirit, because the human spirit is that which gives um, gives him a relationship with God. So you can't fragment Jesus into two parts and divide the human spirit. From the holy, spirit, I mean the human spirit, from his soul. So the immaterial part, his human spirit and his soul, categorized together under the phrase pneuma, spirit, which many places refers just to the immaterial part of man, and is not used as a technical expression for the human spirit, descends to torments, and in torments and in Hades there are incarcerated. Various fallen angels from this episode in Genesis 6. It says, In which he went and made proclamation to the spirits, the term, here's a, here we have in verse 18, one use of the word spirit that's not talking about a human spirit, but it's just talking about the immaterial part of man. And then you have the same word in the plural in verse 19, where it refers to angels. So the term spirit has about five different meanings in Scripture, and you better look at the context. And if you try to say that it always means one thing or the other, then you're going to get in trouble. You have to look at the context. So he goes to make proclamation. This is a victorious proclamation. He is doing two things. He is announcing, one, to the believers that all Old Testament believers are in Abraham's bosom in in paradise. They have been saved provisionally. Why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, the atoning work of Christ had not been accomplished. It was yet future. They are believing that God will save them. So it isn't until it's secured at the cross that they're actually saved. So Jesus has a victorious proclamation that they are now saved Atonement has been accomplished, and you're going to go with me to heaven. And then to the unbelievers and to the demons, the fallen spirits that are here, he is going to proclaim that their doom is sealed. Because his death on the cross guaranteed the defeat of Satan. So in verse... uh, 3.19, we're told that he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And in verse 20, we're told who they are. They're identified. These are the demons, the fallen angels, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. In other words, these spirits are identified as those who were disobedient in the time of Noah. So that tells us that they that identifies the Genesis 6 angels and, and demons. Now turn over a few pages to Jude, verse 6. Jude, verse 6. We have another reference to these same angels. And angels who did not keep their own domain... In other words, did not stay in their proper bodily form and shape, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds or bonds of darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these angels are said to be in torments and they are in bonds of darkness until their future judgment. So this describes the first classification of of demons. Now there's a third verse I want you to look at. Just turn back a couple of pages to first Peter chapter two, verse four. First Peter chapter two, verse four, Peter has just argued that there will be judgment upon upon false prophets, and then in order to illustrate the certainty of divine judgment, he said in verse four, second Peter two, four For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that is Hades, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Now, some people might say, well, verse 4 refers to the initial fall of the angels when they were assigned to Hades. But notice this they're committed to pits of darkness that is a phrase that is parallel to what we read in Jude 6 that they're confined by chains of darkness these are incarcerated in sheol they do not have the freedom to roam around on planet earth and again it is it is connected grammatically and syntactically to verse 5 it is related to the judgment on the ancient world at the time of noah so once again we have three passages first peter 3.18-21, twenty-one, Second uh, 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6 that all refer to this angelic rebellion where certain of the demons took on human form and sought to destroy the genetic purity of the human race back in Genesis chapter 6. So that's the first category of non-operational demons because they are currently confined. These were not demons that were active during the time of Christ. That was an, that's another group. So that's the operational demons. Now the second group of non-operational demons are described in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, this is a demon assault army that is under the command of Apollyon. These are under the command of Apollyon, and they are described... In Daniel chapter, I mean Revelation chapter 12. We won't take the time to go into that. So obviously these are the two groups of demons. Now, when was the original judgment of the demons? We looked at the fact that there are demons. We've identified them as fallen angels. We said that there are two classifications of fallen angels in human history. Excuse me, that was, I've got a typo here. That demon assault army is in Revelation chapter 9, not Revelation 12. and then we have, then we have um, the fact of their judgment, the fact of their judgment. Now, how do we know about their judgment? Well, first of all, we know that it happened at some time in the past, according to Matthew, chapter um, uh, Matthew chapter twenty-four. Matthew tw- Excuse me, Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 Matthew 25:41 Jesus is talking about the future judgment and he says then he will also say to those on the left this is the at the time of the separation of the sheep and the goats he says then he will also say to those on his left depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels And the verb there is the perfect passive participle of etoimazo. Etoimazo, E-T-O-I-M-A-Z-O. And etoimazo in the perfect tense indicates something that was completed in the past with ongoing results. So that indicates that the Lake of fire was established at some time in the past, and it is still in existence, but it is empty. Now, if God has created the lake of fire for the judgment of the fallen angels, and they're not in it, why has there been this delay? Why, ha- why aren't they there? Why is it that God did not sent- uh, put them in the lake of fire and execute his judgment in eternity past? We do know that there was a judgment in eternity past. There was a consequence to their sin, and the earth was punished. That apparently was the domain of these angels, and was uh, many people uh, suggest and infer from the Scriptures that this was Satan's or Lucifer's headquarters before the fall. We know that it was, it was um, the earth was judged because of certain... Phrases in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says that the earth became without form and void. And the Hebrew word there is tohu vabohu. just sort of rhymes in the Hebrew tohu vabohu and this is a technical term used for calamity for chaos and it is in other passages where it is used in the in the Old Testament it describes God's judgment on something for example in isaiah 3411 we have a Uh, prophecy, the judgment of Babylon, that the pelican and porcupine shall possess it and the owl and the raven shall dwell therein and he will stretch out over it the line of confusion and the plummet of emptiness. There we have the two words, Tohu Vabohu, translated confusion and emptiness. Then in Jeremiah 4.23, Jeremiah states, I beheld the earth, this is the land of Israel after judgment, and lo, it was waste and void, that is Tohu Vabohu again, and the heavens, and they had no light. So it's a, a prophetic portrait of the calamity and judgment on the earth during the uh, probably during the future tribulation, the day of the Lord. So tohu v'bohu is always associated with divine judgment. Secondly, the passage in Genesis 1-2 uses the term darkness. There is darkness on the face of the deep. Now, if you examine Scriptures, you know that darkness is contrasted to light, and darkness is often a picture of sin and judgment. Isaiah 45, 7, we read, God is the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. The parallelism there shows that darkness and calamity are parallel. Furthermore, Isaiah 45:18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it a tohu. See, if in Genesis 1-2 it's a tohu, it's a waste place, then how did it get that way? Because God did not create it a tohu, a waste place. Revelation 21 verse 1 it tells us about the future heavens and earth, that in the future heavens and earth, there is, uh, excuse me, Revelation 21 in the future heavens and earth, there is... Uh, No nighttime in the daytime, for there shall be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And the city has, uh, verse 23 of Revelation 21 says, The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamp. So in the future, there is no darkness and continual light in the heavenly state. Since God is light and in Him there is no darkness, there we can say there was no darkness in eternity past. So what brings about tohu? What brings about darkness? And then you have the third category, which is in the Hebrew, tehom, T-E-H-O-M, which is the deep. And this is a reference to the salt sea, and the salt sea is often a picture of calamity and death. For example, in Genesis 8:2, it talks about the fountains of the deep, and that's associated with a judgment. Revelation 20 I mean Ezekiel 26:19 uses the term "the deep" to indicate judgment again. But then in Revelation 21.1, we're told that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no longer any salt sea. So, there is no sea, no salt sea, no deep in the eternal state. So, in a perfect state, there's no darkness and no sea, and that would be true in eternity past as well. So, if we come on the scene of of creation in Genesis 1-2, and there's calamity, there's chaos, there's tohu vabohu, there's darkness, and there's a salt sea, all of which are associated with divine judgment. You have these three things emphasized in Genesis 1-2. Something must have happened. Therefore, the conclusion is that between Genesis 1-2... When God created the heavens and the earth, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, uh, excuse me, Genesis 1.1, and Genesis 1.2, there is a lapse of time, and in that time you have the fall of Lucifer and the fallen angels, a judgment on the planet, and the creation of the lake of fire as the eternal abode for these angels. And the the judgment of those angels is certain. It was uh, referred to in Jude uh, one six and in Second Peter two four, and it is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter uh, twenty four. Isaiah chapter twenty four. In Isaiah chapter twenty four, there is a reference to the future judgment of the angels, at the end of the tribulation. Isaiah 24 describes the various judgments of the tribulation, and then when we come down to verse 21, it reads, Scripture reads, So it will happen in that day, at the end of the tribulation, that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Now if we put that together with Revelation chapter 20, we discover that there is a judgment at the end of the tribulation, and those who are involved in executing that judgment are church-age believers who have received their rewards in heaven and are now ruling and reigning with Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Why are you taking one another to court? Don't you know you're going to judge the angels? Well, when does that take place? It takes place at the end of the tribulation where we read in uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. The only other people sitting on the thrones are the 24 elders in Revelation 4, and that's a reference to the church-age believers. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that is a reference to the judgment that takes place at that point, at the end of the tribulation. Tribulation, unbelievers are judged. Tribulation, saints are resurrected and uh, the demons are and fallen angels are judged by church-age believers. And Satan and the... Uh, we're told in verse 2 and verse 3 that, the, that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are thrown into the abyss and bound for a thousand years, and they're released. And then their final doom is in verse 10... The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it is at the end of the millennium that the final uh, conclusion for the fallen angels takes place, and they all end up in the lake of fire. Now, that brings us to a major question, and that is, why was this judgment postponed? In a nutshell, Satan challenged God. And man was created in order to demonstrate God's point that the creature could not survive and exist and find happiness and meaning in life apart from complete and exclusive dependence upon God. So we are witnesses in that trial. We are witnesses to demonstrate that the creature cannot rule himself that the creature does not have the authority or the ability to rule himself and that no matter what the creature tries, it will always end up in calamity and the only success goes to those who are completely uh, dependent upon the Lord. And we will come back and look at that in more detail next Sunday morning as we continue our study of the angelic conflict with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and so we realize that, that we are part of a tremendous historic scene. We are part of the historic chain of witnesses that stand before all of the angels in heaven, fallen and elect, to demonstrate the uh, power of your grace and your ability in our lives, that, that true success comes only through dependence upon your grace and in following your authority. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their uh, eternal destiny or uncertain of their eternal life, that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit right now is to make a decision for Jesus Christ. The issue is not your sin that was paid for on the cross. The issue is whether or not you accept the free gift of salvation by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Father, we pray that you would help those who are believers here, that we would be uh, challenged by the things that we have learned in terms of our witness and our role in the angelic conflict, that we might glorify you as a testimony to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.